Chapter 2 of the Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Scott Wiebe The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Chapter 2 An Instructive Object Lesson The past is a great instructor as to the power that resides in the Bible to survive the assaults made upon it even by the most skillful adversaries. I referred in the previous paper to the keen literary attacks made on Christianity by its pagan opponents in the second century. A special object of assault was the Gospels. One of the most keen-witted of these assailants was the clever Epicurean Celsus, of whom the German Bauer does not hesitate to say, in acuteness, in dialectical aptitude, in many-sided culture, at once philosophical and general, Celsus stands behind no opponent of Christianity. Church History of First Three Centuries, Volume 2, page 141. His book, called The True Word, abundant extracts from which are preserved to us by Origen, is in its way a masterpiece of attack upon the evangelic records. It is the book of a man of undeniable acuteness, of wide reading, of philosophic culture, of exceptional literary ability, who, after a minute study of the Christian writings, of deliberate purpose, sets himself to assail, undermine, and overthrow Christianity by all the resources of knowledge, argument, and raillery at his command. Scarcely anything escapes his eye of which a point could be made against the new faith. Yet the book failed. So far as we can see, it had absolutely not the slightest effect in stopping the triumphant progress of Christianity in the empire. It is doubtful if we should ever have heard of its existence, but for the fact that Origen, in the following century, composed a reply to it. And the reason is not far to seek. Mockery and ridicule were no effective weapons against the holy power which men felt had entered the world in the religion of Jesus Christ. Christian men and women needed no argument to refute Celsus. They knew from their own experience that he did not do justice to their books, their religion, their morality, their lives. He might see nothing of the transcendent moral and spiritual glory of the Christian gospel, but others were not so blind. His spirit would not attract them where Christ's failed. He might cavil and misrepresent, but he had no substitute to offer for the salvation which men knew Christ had brought them. The case of Celsus is typical and preludes the whole history of the conflict of faith with unbelief. Voltaire was the keenest and most unsparing assailant of the Bible in the 18th century. He is credited with the saying that it took twelve men to found Christianity, but he would show the world that one man was sufficient to overthrow it proud but vain boast. The Bible, which Voltaire labored to destroy, holds on its career of conquest unchecked. The records of Bible societies show that last year, 1905, was actually the largest in the circulation of the sacred volume ever attained. But Voltaire's own books, some score or two of them, stand piled, dust-laden on the shelves. And save for some literary or historical purpose, whoever thinks of consulting them, why again this difference? Simply because the Bible has a message for the world, which the world feels it needs. Voltaire's books had not. 1. These are instances from centuries gone by. 
I propose now in this paper to sketch the history of a school of criticism in the immediate past, which has, I think, valuable instruction for us in the present time of trial for the Bible, and is, besides, in important ways, linked with living controversies. I refer to the famous historical and critical school commonly known as the Tübingen School, from its connection with Ferdinand Christian Bauer, professor in that university. It was a New Testament, not an Old Testament school, but its lessons are as applicable to the one school of criticism as to the other. It had a great prestige about the middle of last century, attracted to itself a band of able scholars, men like Schwegler, Zeller, Hilgenfeld, A. Richel, and ruled the critical world for over a generation. Dr. Samuel Davidson became a convert to it and advocated its theories in this country. It proclaimed itself, in the usual style, to be the critical, as opposed to the uncritical, view, and looked with scorn on those who rejected its conclusions. Bauer says in a note in his church history, Here, if anywhere, is a conflict of principles, which cannot be carried further. The two views simply confront each other as the critical view and the uncritical. Volume 1, page 53. Its temporary vogue markedly resembled that of the Wellhausen School today. Yet little by little its influence ebbed, till now the tide is completely turned, and hardly any among critical writers is found so poor as to do it reverence. A glance at the fortunes of such a school can scarcely fail to be educative. Bauer, the founder of this school, was a man of great learning, ability, and conscientiousness, and had a power which few have surpassed of giving the novel theory a look of plausibility, and even of demonstration. His theory, like Wellhausen's, fascinated by the skill with which it grouped its materials in support of a central thesis, and by the easy key it seemed to afford to many difficult phenomena in the apostolic and post-apostolic ages of the Church. Briefly stated, the theory turns on one great antithesis, which is the pillar of the whole, the alleged existence of Petrine and Pauline parties, in conflict with each other in the early Church. We look in vain, Bauer thinks, for a correct picture of early Christianity in the book of Acts, which is a composition of the second century, written expressly for the purpose of glozing over the differences between the original apostles and Paul. The true state of matters is mirrored in the contemporary and undoubtedly authentic epistles of Paul, of which he acknowledges four, the epistles to the Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans. Just as, in the Old Testament school, we are taken for our starting point from the historical books to the prophets, or such portions of them as the critics are pleased to allow to be genuine. Here, and in the Apocalypse, accepted as a work of the Apostle John, we see the church rent by a schism which threatened its very existence. The primitive believers at Jerusalem were far from having the enlightened views ascribed to them in the book of Acts. They were rather Jews of the most exclusive type, who differed from the rest of their countrymen only in believing that the Messiah had already appeared in Jesus of Nazareth, and who thought of nothing less than of breaking with Judaism or relaxing the obligations of the Mosaic law. When now Gentile churches were founded, it was inevitable that a conflict should arise. Stephen, the Hellenist, was the precursor of the new doctrine, but it was Paul's labors and his success in founding churches among the Gentiles which brought matters to a crisis. Jews came from Judea to Antioch, insisting on the circumcision of the new converts as a condition of salvation. Acts chapter 15 verse 1. This Paul and the Gentile Christians strenuously resisted. 
To try to come to some understanding on the subject, Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to meet with the original apostles. The book of Acts, in the account it gives of the great council at Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, represents the older apostles as on the side of Paul in principle, a representation, according to Bauer, completely contradicted by the narrative in Galatians chapter 2, which besides knows nothing of a public meeting and speaks only of a private interview with the three of chief repute, Peter, John, and James, the Lord's brother. It is quite a mistake, Bauer holds, to suppose that the so-called Judaizers were only a troublesome party or faction in the church, and that the original apostles had no sympathy with their movement. The real heads of the opposition to Paul, according to his reading of the facts, were the original apostles themselves. In his own words, who were the opponents to whom Paul and Barnabas had to offer so strenuous a resistance? Who else than the elder apostles themselves? Church History, Volume 1, page 52. The result of the conference with the three, on Bauer's theory, was a patched-up agreement, according to which each went his own way without any real harmony in principle. This became evident shortly after when Peter came to Antioch and a collision occurred between him and Paul. Peter, influenced by his surroundings, had so far modified his Jewish strictness and had begun to eat with the Gentiles. This continued till a deputation came from James at Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, when heat once returned to his former practice and drew down upon him the sharp rebuke of Paul. According to Bauer, Peter and Paul never after this were reconciled, and the Jewish legalists on their side never forgot the slight put on their great apostle. From this conflict at Antioch dates the final break of Paul with the Jewish party. Thenceforth they set themselves, still with the concurrence of the older apostles, to oppose and frustrate Paul wherever he went. In Galatia they succeeded in subverting his work, and in bringing back his converts to circumcision and the law. In Corinth they introduced divisions, and set up a Petrine as against a Pauline party, which boldly challenged Paul's right to regard himself as an apostle at all. These opponents, as Paul admits, brought with them letters of commendation, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. The Apocalypse is interpreted as breathing throughout an unmistakable spirit of hostility to Paul, who is declared to be expressly excluded in the mention of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, whose names are in the foundations of the holy city, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. The book of Acts, written towards the middle of the next century, seeks to conceal this chasm, but even in it, it is said, the traces of this fierce controversy cannot be altogether effaced. According to its own showing, the first apostles made no attempt to carry out any mission to the Gentiles. Paul met with keen opposition in his work at Antioch and elsewhere, and when at length he returned for the last time to Jerusalem, he was met by the statement of James. Thou seest, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of them which have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Acts chapter 21, verse 20. Here, it is contended, we have pictured the true state of the case, a church at Jerusalem composed of zealots for the law. Paul, on the other hand, preaching freedom from the law, and between the two parties, a bitter and irreconcilable opposition. The tension thus created, however, could not remain permanent. And we have next, according to Bauer, new developments tending to lessen the sharpness of the opposition and to draw the parties closer together. 
approximations began to be made on either side, the stages of which reflect themselves in the literary products of the time. Gospels and epistles were composed from a party point of view, each seeking to commend its own standpoint, and to conciliate opponents. The Gospel of Matthew, for example, represents a modified Jewish standpoint. The Gospel of Luke and the Acts are Pauline, but written in the interests of conciliation. Mark is a neutral gospel based on Matthew and Luke. The newer criticism precisely reverses this relation. Epistles like Ephesians and Colossians represent the same conciliatory tendency. While finally, the Gospel of John brings up the rear with its Christian Gnosticism, pointing to a date somewhere between A.D. 160 and 170. I need not follow the further steps by which, in Bauer's view, after mutual concession, Jewish and Gentile Christianity got blended together towards the end of the second century in the unity of the Catholic Church. Such in its main features was Bauer's theory of the apostolic age, stated and defended with marvelous acuteness, and wrought out with undeniable plausibility and skill. For a time, as I have said, it quite captivated the advanced spirits in theology, just as the Wellhausen theory is doing now. The method seemed the right one, to start, not with documents of a later, or at least uncertain age, but with undoubtedly contemporary first-hand writings. The proofs seemed clear. The contradictions between Acts and the Epistle to the Galatians, the antagonism of Paul to the three, as shown in the same epistle, the emissaries who came from James to Antioch and compelled Peter to renounce his more liberal practice, the conflicts with the Judaizers in Galatia and other churches, the Petrine party in Corinth and the letters of recommendation they brought with them, evidently from some influential quarters, the fact that the early apostles themselves never attempted a Gentile mission, the thousands of Jews who believed, who were all zealous for the law, in Jerusalem, how could it be doubted that the true key had been found to the many perplexing phenomena in the apostolic age which the old theory ignored, and that the eyes of the world had at length been opened to the actual course of events in that greatly misunderstood period? The Wellhausen theory of the three codes as the key to the religious history of Israel could not be clearer. 2. What now, it is instructive to inquire, has been the verdict of history on this ingenious and imposing theory, promulgated by Bauer with so much eclat. I have already hinted that it has not been favorable, but it is well to watch the process. The theory, as above sketched, was not long able to hold the field in its integrity. After a little time had been given for consideration, it became evident to unprejudiced minds that it had at least been pushed much too far, and that, in the form in which Bauer had presented it, it was little more than a caricature of early Christianity. Some of Bauer's ablest disciples, accordingly, ere long felt themselves compelled to part company with their master on essential points, and gradually the party was under the necessity of greatly retracting its position as a whole. Two causes mainly led to this result. One, it was soon seen and had to be acknowledged that, granting him his own data, Bauer had greatly overdriven the evidence, and that on purely historical grounds his contentions could not be maintained. It was early pointed out, for example, by Leckler, that the text in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, so far from confining Paul's visit to a private conference, expressly implies the larger meaning within the church. I went up again, Paul says, 
to Jerusalem and laid before them the gospel which I preach, but privately before them of repute, etc. Here, them, in the connection, can only be the believers in Jerusalem, the church itself, and the but marks the transition to a private interview. Leckler in this had the rare good fortune of convincing his opponents, for the point he raised has been conceded by Zeller, Holston, Ritchell, Flatterer, Royce, and most others. It is not otherwise with the alleged opposition between Paul and the three in Galatians chapter 2. It has long been shown that this chapter, so far from proving antagonism in principle, proves agreement. Paul speaks of false brethren privately brought in, verse 4. But the very mention of privately shows that they were not a majority in the church, and the express statement of the chapter is that when the three heard Paul's account of his work, they gave to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Verse 9. Here again there has come about a consensus of leading critics, as Holston, Ritchell, Royce, Flatterer, etc. It is evident again in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that in withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles, Peter was acting in weakness, against his own better convictions, and the after-hostility of Peter to Paul is a simple myth, now also generally abandoned. Among other indications in the history, an undeniable evidence of the good feeling which subsisted between the church at Jerusalem and the Pauline church is the collection for the poor saints in Judea, with which Paul so honorably busied himself. Difficulty has been raised as to the silence of the later history and the epistles on the decree of the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, verses 23 and following. A. Ritchell has probably given the true explanation in showing that, in the conditions, the decree necessarily fell early into desuetude. The decision of the council was of the nature of a compromise. It settled that circumcision was not to be enforced in the Gentiles. It was not settled whether Jews were at liberty to dispense with the customs of their nation. The difference on this point was one bound to emerge in mixed churches, especially in eating, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The question of principle, once raised, could only be settled in the interests of a liberty which made the decree obsolete. But, two, there was yet another cause which inevitably led to the abandonment of the extreme positions of Bauer, namely, the progress of criticism itself. Bauer's school was nothing if not critical. In the opening of his book on Paul, Bauer says, It may be justly said of the present age that its prevailing tendency is critical. Thought has now, after the laborious toil of many centuries, emancipated itself and thrown away its crutches. This was in 1845. It was with critical weapons its battles were fought and on critical grounds it claimed acceptance. But it was just here, by the continuous application of the same methods, that the leading postulates of the school were overthrown. It was an easy way to gain a victory to make a clean sweep of nearly all the books of the New Testament, thrusting them down to the second century. Old Testament criticism substitutes the exile, and accounting for them by deliberate use of fiction. Yet if this was not done, the theory would not stand for an hour. The late date of the New Testament writings is not an accident, but an essential part of Bauer's theory. So too in Old Testament theories. Yet the progress of the same careful, thorough criticism which, be it conceded, his own school did so much to foster, has rendered it impossible to maintain this late date for the documents on which he founds. With this as an invaluable auxiliary, 
The Old Testament parallel here is archaeology, has gone the progress of discovery, compelling in many instances the driving back of the date of the New Testament books to a much earlier period than Bauer would allow. Bauer, in other words, needed for his purpose to make a clean sweep of the great bulk of the literature of the New Testament. Criticism and discovery combined to show that this could not be done. One by one, Paul's epistles have had to be given back to him, till it is chiefly on the pastoral epistles, in whole or part, that in advanced circles doubt is permitted to rest. The first three Gospels have been carried back by stringent processes of criticism to dates well within the apostolic age. Even the Gospel of John is put by the opponents of its genuineness, a diminishing number, fully half a century earlier than Bauer would acknowledge. More will be said of this revolution in opinion immediately. I take here only an instance or two in illustration of the effect of discovery. Bauer would fain put the Gospel of John down to about A.D. 170. But in 1842, discovery was made of a long-lost book of Hippolytus, about A.D. 200, a refutation of all heresies, which dealt specifically with the Gnostic systems of Basilides and Valentinus, and made it perfectly clear that these systems were founded on the teaching of the fourth gospel. As Basilides flourished as early as A.D. 125, the inference was obvious. Here is one passage. And this, he, Basilides, says, is that which has been stated in the Gospels. He was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. No candid mind will deny that this quotation is from John chapter 1 verse 9. Another example. In a curious heretical production of the middle or latter part of the second century, the Clementine homilies, there were numerous clear references to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and some which any ordinary mind would have thought clear enough to John also. It did not, however, suit the critics to admit this, and the alleged absence of any references to John was turned into an argument against the existence of the gospel before A.D. 160. Up to that time the manuscript was imperfect, the last homily and half of the one preceding being wanting. In 1853 a complete manuscript of the homilies was discovered, and there, in the part formerly missing, was a reference so clear to the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9 that doubt was no longer possible, and the critics yielded up the point. The more recent discovery of translations of Tatian's famous Diatessaron, or Harmony of the Four Gospels, made soon after the middle of the second century, at once establishes the existence of that harmony, which had been keenly disputed. As by the author of the book called Supernatural Religion, W. R. Castles, and the place of John's gospel in it. It begins with the sentence, In the beginning was the word. John chapter 1, verse 1. End of sections 1 and 2 of chapter 2.